Welcome back to the Coaching Kernan Podcast Network. It's September 6, 2022. I'm Dave D'Agostino. I'm joined by my co-host, America's Most Beloved Sports Writer, Kevin Kernan. Also joined by our, our usual experts, Will George, scout with the Colorado Rockies, longtime baseball man, and our performance expert, Sal Marinello. Guys, welcome back to the show. This, Great this, to be here, this, guys. This will be our first full week. We have uh, a couple new shows that will be on the air this week. Of course, this is episode 33, our panel of resident experts. Uh, we also have, uh, we just did our Real Voices of the Game yesterday. That's been published with John Fitzgerald, executive director, founder of Baseball United Foundation, Irish American Baseball Society. Uh, tomorrow we'll have Jeff Fry with She Gone Podcast. Uh, we'll have our newest show, A Day at the Yard, Common Sense Pitching with, with uh, Will and Wiley. Uh, and they have their guests, which we'll announce uh, tomorrow. And then our fifth show is Man on Second Podcast with Joe Fazero. Um, he did his pre-taped earlier this morning. So our first full week of our podcast network, and we're we're excited to rock and roll today. Um, start with our usual uh, with, with Kevin. Kevin, what caught your eye this week? Well, first, yeah, first of all, I want to say if, if uh, baseball fans, you can just stay at Coach and Kernan and become a much smarter, uh, better player and uh, – also, teams, major league teams should start listening a little more. I know we have a lot of people in baseball who listen, but having, uh, you know, a show devoted to pitching and then also one that's going to deal with a lot of prospects, plus what we do. I mean, um, it's one-stop shopping and it's all true. You know, it's truth and honesty. And, and we, we, you know, we don't play favorites here. We're, we're not kissing anybody's butt. Uh, we're not getting a paycheck from uh, certain people in Major League Baseball, so we don't kiss their butts. This is honest stuff. So uh, listen to uh, Coaching Kernan and and make yourself a better player, coach, fan, whatever. A lot of great stuff. And, uh, you know, many things caught my eyes always, and I, I'm trying to stay positive here. Um, it's hard. Uh, base running, I, John Fitzgerald, he talked about it. He had a great uh, – point that he teaches all his young teams he, they learn base running first and we've seen it really bad in the major league so i'm not going to go over that again we've talked about that for forever all i want to say is if the ball's hit off the wall and you're on second base and it's hit high off the wall you should score standing up not be thrown out at third base rounding third like i saw with the rays the other day or you know uh one thing after another they don't watch the ball it's really as simple as that um uh, one of the great baseball things I was taught was watching the ball. And um, the biggest thing that caught my eye, though, this week was, you know, I spent time speaking to Kevin Maris, you know, one of Roger's six kids, Roger and Pat. Pat is is uh, doing well, you know. She married Roger, I think, way back in 1956. Roger was drafted by the Indians in 1953, the year I was born. And, um, and Kevin is a longtime high school coach at a Pretty pretty good program in in Gainesville called O'Call, and um, he also has the Florida Hardballers. Has some quality people. He um, he worked with Mike Zanino two years ago. Really got his swing going when Zanino was an All Star. Hit thirty three home runs. Um, got a kid at Florida now. Is going to be like a number three pick in the draft next year. So it's like it's to me it's amazing that you can go from nineteen fifty three, the year I was born, with Roger. And Rogers, Roger is still having an impact because, like Kevin told me, um, he's teaching things that Roger and his friends, meaning Mickey Mantle, Yogi Berra, guys with the Cardinals, taught 
talk to Kevin. So uh, it's uh, it's one of my better columns, I got to say. It's over at Ball 9, Legacy of 61. But, but we can always talk about it. So that's I'm going to start off there about the importance of uh, what Aaron Judge is doing. Uh, 54 home runs, doing it in class, doing it, uh, you know, don't see a lot of bat flips out of him. Um, you know, he looks out towards the bullpen, it looks like to me. You know, that's a new thing now. A lot of guys, I know the Braves do that. If you watch the Braves, they always, uh, when they hit a home run, they look out towards the bullpen and maybe tap their helmet and they're giving love to the bullpen. So that's what that's all about, little things like that. So Judge is, uh, you know, he's going to have the honest, to me, the honest uh, home run record uh, shortly, you know. Uh, Maris is at 61. Anybody above 61 has been a steroid-tainted guy, you know, Sosa, McGuire, and, of course, Bonds. So so Judge is, uh, you know, he bet on himself. He's uh, The Yankees weren't smart enough to, to uh, sign him long-term for many, many years. If he leaves, they'll pay the price. But that, that's where I'm starting with uh, Aaron Judge doing it right, and I'll let everybody else weigh in on their thoughts. Well, as a as a guy seeing it from the pitching angle, I mean, how do you pitch Aaron Judge? Um, Obviously, not like they're doing right, throwing waste yeah, time. You know, I, I I would say carefully. You know, um, I wouldn't be worried about how hard I was throwing. I wouldn't be worried about the shape of my pitches. I would be worried about commanding pitches and making pitches and moving the ball around the zone. You know, there's ways to get hitters out. You know, you rock a hitter frontward, backward with speed, add, subtract, you go up and down, you move his eyes and you go in and out and you have four quadrants of the strike zone. And I would say that Aaron judges the majority of his 54 home runs have been, you know, filet mignon center cut (laughs) uh, mistakes as opposed to pitches that are, that are quality pitches. Now he's big enough and strong enough and, you know, playing in Yankee Stadium where he'll take a ball down and away if he's looking out over the plate with two strikes and he'll hit a home run to right field. And um, as a pitcher, you tip your hat, Um, uh, you know, but I I would say the majority of his pitches, you know, you, you, you have to pitch, you have to make pitches. Well, I want to jump in real quick because uh, along those lines, that's a great point. And um, I'm seeing I, – li- I like to watch uh, – when I watch the games, I watch the opposing team networks TV a lot. And uh, no matter who I'm watching, if it's Yankees, Mets or whatever. Um, but I like to – I always hear the analyst who's usually an ex-ball player. I think it was Glenn Perkins the other day uh, in Minnesota – and they say the same thing. Oh my gosh, a, fe- a, cur- a breaking ball right over the heart of the plate. So, so are these guys trying so hard to make the perfect pitch? That's my question. That they're screwing it up, or they just have no clue. I, I would say I, I I don't think that's emphasized enough. We've we've chased the the shiny object of velocity and spin rate and pitch shapes as opposed to the things that were taught, which were foundations of pitching, which were uh, you have a good delivery. When you have a good delivery, you have good command and you throw strikes in your pitches. You maximize your stuff. Um, And I don't think that's being taught enough. 
Uh, so many guys come into games and they try to throw their way out of a jam and not pitch their way out of a jam. We, we so, spend so much time measuring those tools, but as you always say, well, it comes down to how you use those tools. Yeah. You know, you know I mean, the what I would say in my reports that I write on pitchers, uh, good pitchers have focus and are able to execute. Uh, I, I write up guys who have really good arms but have no focus and no ability to execute. And we can see what happens when you don't execute. Guys like Aaron Judge and Giancarlo Stanton and uh, Anthony Rizzo, and you move from team to team, guys can hit mistakes. They hit fastballs down the middle of the plate. So, uh, you know, command is just not being stressed as much as it should be. So with with Judge's body type, obviously, is a specimen. Um, He hasn't been – he's been on again, off again, healthy. He's obviously healthy now to see what he can do. What do you see with his movements? Uh, Can a guy like him stay healthy? What would you do with him if you were working with him? Well, Kevin and I have had this discussion, and I think we spoke about it once, that he had that hitting coach who has him do some very specific things. And I'm not here to debate, you know, the pros and cons of certain uh, hitting approaches. But what I will say is from a movement standpoint, um, if he was training in a traditional sense and trying to swing the bat and hit the ball like he was and he like he does, then that's going to set you up for injury because it's again, you know, you're now in a super specific realm of of his of his technique with his swing, and yet he's training in this middle of the road way that's going to really muddy the waters. So I think Kevin had mentioned that he had changed his his training. Uh, you know, uh, well, Dave, well, here's what I saw. So I saw. Uh, the things that he was really like, and I'm, if you remember, we talked about it uh, a couple of years ago. He was having calf issues, much like Stanton now and stuff like that. He's obviously changed something because there's not as much stress on those parts of the body now. And he's Agreed. he's kind of balanced it out uh, in a yeah, way. Yeah, I mean, these guys would never be in the weight room. Uh, I mean, I've said that a hundred times. And- I, th- I think he's really cut back his weight. I, that's a yeah. guess on my part. Yeah, right? I mean, I would. I, you know what? You'd probably – that's as good of a guess as anything because, you know, the weight room is going to hurt that. Uh, the weight room hurts most of what they're doing. It's just who can tolerate it, which, you know, we've we've talked about this too. It's like why you see guys Mike Trout's age and in that area that they start breaking down because the body is resilient to a point. These young bodies can accommodate a lot, but at some point you're still going to get to that, you, you know, that point where you can't any longer. And it used to be older because they weren't putting in all that, that unneeded load and wear and tear. But he's obviously doing something right, Sal, wouldn't you say? Because he's yeah, playing. No, he's I agree. Yeah. He's in the field this year, too. He's playing. Yeah, so- I mean, he, he looks good running. You know, he hasn't, again, look at all the other guys breaking down and he hasn't. Yeah. I would say yeah. it, he, he must have changed something with his training. Yeah. Will, go ahead. What did you have? To- yeah, just, you know, Kevin, you gave us a, a shot of the past in your pictures in the Maris article of Roger Maris and, uh, I think it was Stan Musial and Mickey Mantle. And um, I remember meeting Joe DiMaggio. They were just regular guys. You know, they weren't, they weren't big buffed up monster, you know, you know, uh, defensive uh, linebackers or anything. They were just regular guys who generated bat speed and had a good hand eye coordination and they found the barrel of the bat and hit the ball hard. And they ended up hitting a lot of home runs and hitting the ball extremely well. It's not being in the weight room. You know, it's, it's, it's being, 
you know, physically strong, but also being flexibly strong uh, in your body as a baseball player. One of the things I see with Judge, too, is he seems to leverage his body really well. Like in the past, maybe tall guys would have some issues, uh, but he makes all that work for him by staying, keeping that bat in the zone for the longest period of time. So that's just from a pure hitting standpoint, he's 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 getting basically, you know, the, you know, the, the, the knob of the bat there and all of a sudden letting the barrel do the work where it's just a, a, a lever and it's not a, uh, it's, it's not, it's not a weight, so to speak. Yeah. Great point. Yeah. Sal, go ahead. Um, yeah. The, the, the tall athlete thing is, is true with regard to training, not with technique. Um, so I think that's something that we could address at another time, but you know, the, the tall athlete, especially the younger, you know, tall athlete if you uh, anyone out there has younger kids um that have grown earlier uh male or female uh, depending on your your um your maturation stage there you've got to be super careful and you know i'm i'm a not a big fan of the strength lifts anyway when you have those long kids early in their career you really have to stay away from that and even as an older athlete there's still concerns and things you need to do differently well i think that speaks to uh that speaks to uh and I want to make this point as well. Aaron Judge may be the smartest baseball player out there in the major leagues right now because he's obviously made some changes. He he uses his body as best as it can be used, and he's not he's not getting injured. He's not running in the walls like he used to, or making dives. Uh, so I think I think uh, and Will can address this the, the the intelligence part of the game, knowing who you are, and you got to give a guy time to. To, to figure it all out. And he's figured it all out. But I think, you know, also running bases, uh, making throws, being on the good side with teammates, making them feel better about themselves. Why doesn't every player just emulate? I'm not saying you can be Aaron Judge because only he can hit the ball like he hits the ball. But why can't you play the game? Why aren't they playing the game like Aaron Judge instead of the numbskulls that they're following out there? Well, maybe he's, maybe he's taking control of his, his, his destiny you know, not to be hokey, but, you know, these guys, uh, you you guys know better than I, but they must have everyone in their ear telling them this and that. And maybe he sat down and evaluated himself and said, hey, I want to do what makes me feel good and what makes me better. Maybe it's as simple as that. One other thing I wanted to touch on, you guys talked about, you know, there's a lot of pictures of Roger Maris in those days, you know, with, you, get, you got to see their arms. You know, he did not look like these guys look today. And um, he's hitting the ball far and, and obviously has the home run record in the season. So, you know, all the concept of these guys needing to be in the weight room is all nonsense. That, that, I think Roger Maris had a – and I do know from talking to the family, though, uh, I think he had a um, – he would have summer jobs growing up where he would really, like, maybe work for the railroad or do some yeah. – sometimes things well, like that. I read a story about Hack, Hack Wilson. Wilson. Movements. Yeah. Hack Wilson used, worked on a job where he used a sledgehammer. You know, he, that, he, he – so, you know, those are the things that make you stronger – the weight room is not having any impact on the baseball field in a positive way in our current situation. Interesting. I just look at those forums you guys had. They were, they were enormous. Go ahead, Will. No, that's where I was going. I had the honor of meeting probably 25 uh, baseball, hall of fame, baseball Hall of Fame hitters and pitchers. And the strength, you know, there used to be an old saying, be strong from your elbow to your fingertips. And you would shake their hands, 
and you 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 knew you were shaking. You weren't shaking no dead fishes. You were yeah. shaking men. With shows we dealt with that and how to get stronger. So that's yeah. Uh, you know yeah. that you know that's where people concentrated on strength was in their hands, their wrists, their forearms, and everything else was flexible and moved quickly. Sal, so go ahead. You want to add to that? No, no. I, I just uh, you know th- that's. Again, we could we could argue this around the mulberry tree, uh, but at the end of the day, the guys in those uh, back then were stronger in a functional, purposeful way than the guys are today. Yep. I'll leave it at that. You've been good at the, with our audience on that, as I think we all have talking about. You want to be a strong hitter, hit. Work on your yes. hitting. Okay, get stronger with it. Kevin, I, I, part of our – I want to move this to keep it on the Yankees, but – Part of the way that I encourage my sons to learn the game, and I think we all grew up doing it, is listening to the managers define the game afterwards for us. It's a way that they can encapsulate it, and make the fans a little bit better with the IQ. When if you were if you were back in the uh, in the room with with Aaron Boone after the game, they batted Aaron Judge first. What questions would you have asked him? Well, first of all, I would have said, "What what are you thinking?" Uh, it's okay to bat him first because the way they're struggling, you maybe get more at bats with them. I, I can buy that end of it, but you got to bat somebody in front of him. And in this case, it would be ninth, who's somewhat of a threat. And and I know they've had their issues with injuries, but you can't hit Aaron Hicks in front of Aaron Boone. Although I mean, uh, in front of Aaron Judge and Aaron Boone, you know he's following orders. I'm sure. I just, just had to come from the top, and then I think a day or two later they had. They moved him back to second. They had Glaber Torres hitting in front of him. Um, and this also, I think this speaks. So I, w- I would ask Boone, what the hell are you doing there with that with that lineup? So who hit behind him? Yeah, and, and, and yeah, yeah, exactly. And 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 now uh, it, it, it speaks to how dumb the other teams are. <laughs> I mean, that's my point here. I mean, the Yankees are dumb for setting it up this way, where they're basically creating a a a highway. A, a toll or an easy an easy pass toll. This is how you get around Aaron Judge and stop our offense. But the teams are too dumb to even do it, and they uh, yeah. you know they fall right into the trap. And uh, maybe they walk the guy. How in the world you ever walk Aaron Hicks is beyond me and some of these guys. And uh, the the best thing for Judge right now is getting people on base ahead of him, so they just can't automatically walk him. And no, and, uh, I'm talking about winning games too. I'm not talking about the record here. The record's going to be the record. Whatever happens, you know, I'd hate to see him get walked a lot because not having a fair shot. But I'm talking about just from the competition of trying to win a game, uh, and even the Rays, you know, who are just held up to the, you know, the the team on the hill, the the gleaming team on the hill. How smart they are! That was a really dumb. They won two out of three, but they should have won three, and it was a really dumb series they played. Yeah, well, um, Will, how would you have, how would you have handled this from a pitching standpoint with Judge leading off? Well, um, it depends on who's hitting behind him. I'm I'm not sure, <clears throat> you know. But you know, I think we all strive for. Uh, I I guess they call it length in your lineup. Um, the more length you have, like the Dodgers, you're a tough team. You know, there's no there's no uh, able to exhale. When, when you're facing a deep lineup the, with guys who give you quality at bat after quality at bat after quality at bat. And um, from a pitching standpoint, with Judge leading off, um, 
you know, I, I, I'm kind of from the catfish hunter thing. You know, if he's leading off an inning, I don't want to walk him and create a big inning. I'm going to challenge him, try to make good pitches. If he hits a solo home run, that's okay. Yeah, they had LeMahieu behind him. LeMahieu yeah. was yeah, and he's been ter- I, since and, he and, him, and DJ, you know, DJ's been playing hurt too. Yeah, and Clearly. he's having a little bit of a tough year this year. That's why I want to point out one other thing on Aaron Judge um, to, to try to educate uh, people. Um, everybody looks at the money, and of course the money is going to be big when he's a free agent. But knowing Aaron Judge like I know Aaron Judge, knowing the family like I know the family, Aaron Judge is going to want to put himself in a lineup that has a chance to get to the postseason and win every year. Yeah. So that's going to be a big factor. and Everybody's overlooking at that. They're looking at it purely from a money standpoint. So I see Judge winding up, and it could be the Yankees if they make some adjustments, but I see Judge winding up with a lineup best fits him, and uh, they have some pitching. Yeah. I know we talked about a little bit before show. Um, I, I want to go back to Maris for a second. Uh, Kevin, Roger Maris, a Hall of Famer? I think he is, simply because, to me, the game is all about – like your son said, like Kevin told me, he says the game's about numbers. You know, what's baseball without the numbers? And the numbers have been cheated by certain people. So we all we all have a different look at numbers now than we had in back in the sixties. And he, you can say he had a short short career, but hey, seven times Roger Maris went to the World Series. Also you know, that's like a Sandy Koufax thing, you know? Yeah. And and the other thing is he won two MVPs. Much smaller group of players, so that's really something to win back-to-back MVPs. He set the home run record that has stood basically forever until all these other things happened, you know, and he broke Babe Ruth's record. So if you just start piling on all the accolades, to me, that's a Hall of Fame player. I mean, nothing against Harold Baines, but did he do any of that in my book? No. And and there's a million guys like that, you know. Um, Mazeroski and things like that. So I think the Veterans Committee, and also one other point, with him, and I thought Kevin made a great point. You know, he, we all know he died 51 years old. Uh, you know, I think it was 85 when he passed away. Well, his legacy, and that's what this story is, legacy of 61. His legacy also is that he created, you know, up, up in Fargo, there's this cancer institute, basically. That's Roger Maris, you know, a cancer institute and and um it's called the sanford uh, roger maris institute i think or something like that but he so he's saving lives outside of baseball as well he he's left an unbelievable legacy and to me you put all those things together and it's not about war or this or that that's that's a hall of fame player clearly in my book and uh he should have been in the hall of fame decades ago sal go ahead kevin touched on something and we had this discussion but the Whenever we talk about a record like Maris's and then someone says, well, you know, since whatever happened or the steroids and they say they don't want to get into it or they pass over it. But the reality is the steroids have changed everything from uh, in the game from the moment they became an issue till we're sitting here today. They've affected every single inning of every single game played from whenever you want to say is the starting point. So it, it's it's a shame that it's such a bad thing that it so drastically changed the scope of the what baseball represents, and yet people are still willing to just kind of let it go by the boards. Obviously, we haven't, but even in our discussion, and I, I really don't think any of these 
issues could be rectified until those guys are put in the spot where everyone recognizes what they did and you can't have those records count because the numbers matter more to baseball than they do to any other sport. You know, all the stat heads I know and still hang around with at 60 years old, we know the baseball stats from back when those uh, those records really occurred. I couldn't tell you a lot of the, the football and basketball stats. And I watched those sports, if not more than I did baseball, especially football. So there's a handful of records people know in other sports. There's so many other records people know from baseball that have been tainted by what Bonds did and Clemens did and McGuire and Sosa, and it should never be forgotten, and it should always be pointed out. Well, I think let's let's not let's not overlook the fact too that's still here today. PED. It is. It's I still mean, going uh, on. We just and, had you know, all the all the uh, all the worry about gambling. Steroids have done more damage to baseball than gambling will ever. Yeah, and and uh, you know Tatis re- recently. Uh, I just saw another player the other day. Um, you know they're still getting caught, so that means it's still out there, and it's really it's really been um, it's it's uh, it's it's been a terrible blight on the game. I remember I asked Goose Gossage once. So I said, Goose, when did you first see steroids in the game? And you know he's totally anti-steroids, and. Um, he told me, he said, and I checked it with uh, Eckersley. Um, him and Eckersley, I think it was 1989, they were on the same team. Might have been Oakland back then. And uh, around 80, it was in the 80s. And they noticed all, the, they were playing Oakland or whatever. I forget what team they were on. But anyway, they started seeing these guys come out. And he, he pegs it to about the late 80s when it first started. It was when they uh, started uh, weightlifting. Yeah, you know, uh, I, Tom Verducci did a really good piece on the during the steroid exposure thing. He said, you know, you send guys never wait went to weight rooms. Guys never went and lifted weights in power gyms at Gold's Gym with all the muscle heads in there that 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 are using steroids, bodybuilders and things like that. You send a bunch of competitive athletes into a gym without any supervision. And that's what happens, you know, you know, start talking to somebody and goes, hey, how many home runs did you hit? 15. Well, take this, you'll hit 30. And players want to do that. Players yeah. want to do that. Oh, exactly. You know, it's it's the competitive edge. Um, it's people that want to make more money and they know they're going to get paid more money. Um, I mean, all those things happen. And, and you're right. It, it Weights, weights came into play in the in in the late eighties, mid mid to late eighties is when. I'm wondering if it's still around much in the amateurs. That's what in the, in the states because I remember, without getting into too much detail, but I remember watching my kids play, and you could just tell what kids suddenly bulked up overnight. You know. Yeah, it's uh, it's unfortunate. Go ahead, Will. No, it's 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 unfortunate that. That it, it 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 is part of uh, it is part of the game, and uh, there's still kids getting uh, getting caught, and I think there's still kids that are trying it and beating the system. Um, they roll the dice uh, with different cycles and things that you read, and it's you know not good. I think yeah, it, it's it's never going to stop, and there's always going to be the next thing. Yeah. Because test, testing is going to have to be more uh, uh, specific, and it's going to have to be more intricate, and it's it just it'll never stop because always, always there's always going to be that pursuit of getting the edge. Yeah, 
Yep. And unfortunately, that phrase, does the end justify the means? I think some of these guys that use it have to stop and think. And that's a problem um, yeah. that they're abusing the game that way. So with another great star here, we talked a little bit of him off the air. And maybe Judge could Judge may end up being his teammate next year. Mookie Betts made a comment. And I have a lot of respect for the way Mookie Betts plays the game and how he swings the bat um, and plays the field. He came up as a second baseman. He made the comment the other day that Jacob DeGrom may be the best ever. Um, what do you guys think about that comment? I'll let Will start that one. Uh, he, no, I, you know, you know, I, I, I hate those, uh, the greatest ever, the great, there's been so many great pitchers over the years. And unfortunately, you know, he's been hurt a bunch of times. Um, he hasn't won a lot of games. Um, even, uh, you know, I grew up in Philadelphia in 1972. Steve Carlton won 27 games on a team that won 56 games. So I get it. Your team stunk. But when the other, he went out and shut the other team out, um, he finished games. <clears throat> so, I mean, he's, you know, he's going to go down as one of the great pitchers in our game with a great arm. Um, but, to say he's the greatest ever, not even close. Yeah, a little bit sensational there. Is yeah, he- I think uh, Mookie got caught up in the uh, in the moment. He certainly – I think what, what they're saying is when they face this stuff now, there's nothing like it. And I think that's how DeGrom is right now. When he's on, there's nothing like it. I mean, what he, what he does – and I think he holds his slider a little differently than other guys. He gets that late bite, and um... well, I mean, he has he has great stuff. But listening to Will Clark and Jeff Fry last week, and you know, they went they, they went over a litany of pitchers that they face who don't have to go behind anybody that's pitching today. I, I, there was a comment on that show. I want to get your guys' thoughts on it. Brandon Crawford, current shortstop. Yeah. Um, yeah. Had, yeah. the guts, had the guts to walk up to Will Clark. And uh, I only talked to him for a little bit prior to the show. And then uh, he, he couldn't hit today. Yeah, he's a tough guy. He, he uh, It's not an act. He's a tough guy. He um, he made the comment to say, Will, you would not be able to hit the modern day pitcher. And um, I thought uh, Will Clark's head was going to spin off. But how yeah. do you feel about that? I mean, that's. No, I mean, that's the same thing. They think just because they face the starter for only five or six innings and they have a bunch of guys that come in and grunt and fart and try to throw as hard as they can for the next three or four innings, that that makes it a tougher game than facing Steve Carlton or Tom Seaver or Jim Palmer or Nolan Ryan for eight innings or nine innings. And they have unbelievably good stuff, unbelievably good command, and make pitches that the, you know, the reason all the guys that throw hard are in the bullpens is because none of them know how to pitch, and they weren't starters. So they come into games, and yeah, they throw hard, but in most cases, they don't have good command, and they don't have consistent secondary pitches. That's why they end up in a bullpen. I think you see with some of the Yankee relievers, they've had some success. But if you wait them out, they're going to walk you. Yeah, you have- or, or 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 they will make a mistake. They um, will make a mistake if you if they get behind. You're, you're yeah. going to lay one in there. So I I, I think. Uh, and I get whole- it. You know, I mean, facing a big league, 
a big league pitcher is not an easy thing to do. But to make that comment is is asinine, you know, that you couldn't hit. You know, and like Clark said, yeah, I cut my swing down when I got two strikes and he throws me a 98-mile-per-hour fastball up over the plate. I'll hit a line drive to left field because you got a shift on against me. Exactly. And nobody's over there. You know, yeah. and, uh, you know, it was the question – I saw on uh, the uh, Hall of Fame game, old-timers game this year, somebody asked Wade Boggs, what would you do if you had to face the guys uh, that you're, you're facing now? He said, well, you know, when they bring the relievers in, I would take the three walks the last three innings, and I would take my two-for-two two against the starter. <laughs> and, and, again, using – this whole thing now with the shift coming in, I don't want to get too heavy into this, but the lines on the field and this guy can't be there. If the, if the hitters had just taken care of this organically, there would be no shift issues. Because uh, I'm watching games all the time. This 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 non-command pitcher, and that's the one thing about I will say about Mookie Betts. He, he's right about DeGrom and that DeGrom's command is phenomenal for the most part. And that's what sets him apart from today's pitcher. So it backs up what we're saying. But all these pitchers today, they're throwing – they got the shift on for a lefty hitter, and they're throwing fastballs away because they can't command. And all they got to do is poke it in the other field. And it's it's it can be done. It can be done easily. They're cut playing right in their hands. Cut your swing down. You don't have to try to hit a home run with two strikes. And, and every team, if you look at all, all the garbage teams, you'll always see – uh, a situation first and second, they don't move the guys up. It gets to the third guy. There's maybe two strikeouts, or there's going to be a pop up in there because they all pop up now. Oh yeah. And then you'll see the third guy takes swings from his butt. He's batting eighth, doesn't come close to any pitches, and uh, and they all all say, "Wow, what a great job the pitcher did getting out of this." No, he did. He he got out of it, but it wasn't a great job. The hitters, the hitters, the hitters aren't as good as they used to be in recognizing pitches. No. No. Yeah, yeah, the, the one thing these guys just are so ignorant of the past to, to make that comment, you know, DeGrom is great, but we I think we mentioned this stat. Uh, you got guys like Carlton Seaver and Ferguson Jenkins had like 223-plus complete games. DeGrom doesn't even have 205 uh, games started in his career. So that puts – you have to do it, you know, when, when you realize guys did what DeGrom did for a longer period of time, you know, even Seaver almost, you could make a side-by-side -side comparison for the lack of support he had uh, most of his time in New York. But he went on and did it in Cincinnati, uh, in Cincinnati and then Chicago and, and was ex, uh, super effective into his 40s. Yeah. No, it's uh, – you know, I mean, there's great players that play in every era – um, you know, I'm not going to get into a pissing contest of who's the greatest ever. Let me just throw uh, a name out there, Will, while you while you're making that statement, though. J.R. Richard, right? Oh my gosh! I, you know, I think they, <laughs> I think Fry and Clark brought him up. I, oh, they, you know, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, uh, I saw him when he rehabbed after he had the stroke in the minor leagues, and our guys were scared to death. I mean, I mean, you know, he was six foot eight. He would release the ball at about 100 miles an hour, about eight feet from home plate because his arms were so long. It was unbelievable. And I mean, what an unbelievable physical specimen he was. 
How about 313 strikeouts uh, a year sometimes? Yeah. You know? yeah. And then, uh, and how about this? 19 wild pitchers led led uh, led all pitchers in uh, uh, you know um, in 1979. With with these one knee catchers, he'd have thirty six or forty wild well, pitchers. You know, you know, go dig into some Mets history with uh, Dwight Gooden's here. His those yeah. first couple of years in New York before you know before he had his off field issues. My gosh. Well, we'll have – I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put Colton into Dwight. We'll get him on Real Voices of the Game because we can talk about that one minor league season he had. That was, oh, my gosh. He was unbelievable. That's the That might have been yeah. the greatest pitcher of all time right oh, there. Oh, my gosh. He was – his stuff was ungodly. I mean – Well, what made that curveball so good? That's what I remember. Well, it just it, – it, 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 uh, to use modern-day lingo, uh, he tunneled the ball. You know, it, it 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 came out of the same release point as his fastball. That was ninety six on the slow gun, which would be about a hundred and four now. And then it was a twelve six curveball that looked like a high fastball that just went straight down. Yeah, and he was not afraid to come inside. No. We um recently in the news, this guy can't get out of the news. It's going to the umpires now. Angel Hernandez. The other day, uh, he was called out by the PA announcer, which happened to be Steve McMichael, the former uh, defensive lineman for the, the Bears when they won their world championship under Ryan. McMichael called him out. I think he had a couple of beers in each hand, but he uh, called him out right on the field, and Hernandez did not uh, like that at all. With the, with the talk of automating the umpires, uh, and not to bang on Angel Hernandez, but is, how, how does his presence and continued putting up, you know, putting him up in the spot? How does that hurt our cause of banging against? Because none of us want that automated umpire. What, what do we have to do? I mean, he, you know, he he's never been a very good umpire. Uh, I had him in the Florida State League in 1982 as a young umpire when I was still pitching. I saw him as a coach, and uh, he always had very thin skin, which is not good to be an umpire. Um, he threw uh, one of our scouts out of two games when he missed pitches and he said something in the stands. So, like, I mean, you know, he, he's always had that issue where he never really ever – he's never really self-evaluated himself. And that's what I was going to say. We're an umpire-friendly show. We have Mike Brown on here. We love him. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, we always support the umpires. But I know that the thin skin, but why? What, out the, I guess the self-evaluation is key, but – why? Yeah, yeah, I mean, he's, I mean, he's had all those issues. He's had a lot of really bad calls. And, you know, for years he had big playoff games and he had big World – he was in the World Series. And he missed a lot of calls. And you know what? At the end of the day, just because you have seniority, if you're missing a lot of calls and your strike zone's being evaluated and it's not good – you can't blame anybody but yourself. You can't blame other people for that. Yeah, I want. I want to correct something that Dave said. I'm looking forward to the uh, automatic, uh, automated balls and strikes, simply because it will shut up all the nerves, and there are going to be a lot of bad calls. Believe me, that it's just it's it's going to happen. And and now now the people who like the human element, like myself. And I can put up with an Angel Hernandez and some of these other guys. You're going to see, I'm predicting it now. I could be totally wrong here, but we'll come back and see at the end of the day. 
I think the automatic uh, that the balls and strike system is going to really blow up in their face. And I can't wait. I can't wait till an umpire calls an automatic strike and a hitter for taking too long. And if it happens in a big part of a game, that's going to be fun too. So, so from that perspective, I'm looking forward to it. I'm looking forward to letting managers back on the field and argue with the, uh, with the computer. Should be yeah. fun. Well, the other good point will be, uh, uh, maybe catchers will come off their knee trying to uh, frame pitches with an automated strike zone that you're trying – you can't fool an automated strike zone. No, you can't fool it, but the ball itself can be – I don't know which way it's going to go, Will, and we saw it last year in uh, yeah. in, uh, in the Florida State League. And um, I think when I – they've made changes to that, and now you have the challenge where you can challenge it. But yeah, still, they were, they, pitchers told me that they were missing 20, 20 pitches a game, 20. I, I, I saw that in person. But I will say it's supposedly the eagle eye or whatever is set up for the front of the strike zone. So framing has nothing to do with it. You catching it at the back of the strike zone and trying to pull it off of, up, up off of one knee is not going to steal you a pitch. And again, the human element is gone, you know. Um, and I, every once in a while, for whatever reason, certain uh, networks don't have the strike zone, you know, they have, they don't have the box. It's so much more fun to watch a game without the box. That, that, that may just be me, but, uh, yeah. I mean, I think we're, we're, we're too much into technology across the board, not yeah. just in baseball, but everywhere and, and football for all the mistakes they make, they have the technology. Um, I watched the Florida state game the other night, craziest game I ever saw, the guy went out of bounds with one second left, and it, had, it took about seven minutes to straighten it all out. But eventually they got it right, and um, football still, for all their problems for the most part, they still they let technology in the game, but it doesn't dominate the game like it's going to in baseball, and that's going to be a mistake. Yeah. So, well, you know what? I don't watch a lot of tennis, but I just with the way the, the matches have been going, I've watched them, and you know the, I didn't realize there weren't any lines people. And it, it really makes the match move faster because there's none of this nonsensical, you know, pouting and gesticulating. And, you know, one of the things I always found ridiculous about baseball were these arguments about uh, every play, whereas other sports don't have any uh, patience for that. I mean, you could you imagine, you know, trying to argue a baseball, uh, a football call or a basketball call like they do in baseball. So uh, while I agree with Kevin, I like the human element. I think we're at the point, and football's problem is they still pretend that the refs on the field are in charge when they're not. Um, they make it like they are, but if they really wanted to streamline, they'd have someone up top watching, take out that whole ridiculous step of putting a replay screen on the field that's the size of an iPad at best, and have some guy try to make a call on that um, instead of having some guy upstairs or wherever they are making the call. So I think this technology is going to be a back and forth, but I think ultimately it's going to it's going to win the day. The fact that they use- I got one tennis comment. I don't I don't I don't think you have a real uh, U.S. Open unless you have all the great players there. Well, that I agree. You know, they made a big deal about the number one and two seed being out, but your best male, male tennis player is not even allowed to play. So that's it's not it's not a real tournament. Yeah. Well, go ahead. Well, just um, one question from a scientific standpoint. Because baseball is using the same technology, it's called eagle eye that they use in the tennis. But 
the eagle eye is is there's actually lines on a court to to eagle eye um and and the question that no one in baseball because i'm not that good scientifically um you have an imaginary box you know uh, how does eagle eye you know define imaginary box for the hitter every pitch it's my understanding and I could be back, you know, I'm sure if I'm wrong, people will let me know. But I think they take uh, every batter and they kind of take a, uh, you know, they take a, they take his measurements. And oh, then no, they, you're, you're, you're right, Kevin, but they, they, measure build, them. they build it off of that. But what happens if you change into a exactly. crowd? You change your stance. You, you, you widen out your legs when you get behind in the count, you, uh, you know, you, you made a complete adjustment from spring training where you were upright, now you're down, or vice versa. Your strike zone changed, and those measurements are not as the game's happening. And also, one other thing, that since we started talking so much about Aaron Judge, I, I can't imagine that this would be good for Aaron Judge. <laughs> no. Being, being a much bigger strike zone, but uh, we'll see. We'll see. Yeah. Well, we're, we're coming up on our time here. Um I had a question, and I, when we get to Sal's question, I, Sal, I want you to give a tip of the day. But the uh, I saw you on Twitter. Uh, we had a, we had a comment from Gary Gaetti during the interview about you know, him and Jeff Fry were talking about cold weather baseball and how they used uh, Vaseline to stay warm. But you had a better solution to that. We have got a lot of fans in our audience that play baseball in the Northeast, and as we know, all of us uh, being from the Northeast, that it's uh, it gets awful cold there in March, April, and May sometimes snow. What, what was the solution you had to stay warm? Well, that wasn't mine. I believe that Gary Gaetti earlier said he used Abilene, which it's not like the town in Texas, Abilene, it's Abilene. Yeah. And it's like a cold cream. Now it's not cold enough here for me to know if it works yet, but I bought my, uh, my little uh, uh, container of it through Amazon and I'm going to try it. It's it's supposed to keep you warm. It's supposed to be less greasy than Vaseline. I had tried Vaseline as both an athlete and as a coach, and it's, it makes you feel disgusting. I would rather figure out an, a better uh, you know, um, uh, thermal shirt or bottoms than to put Vaseline on my body. But I'm, I'm curious to see how this Abilene works. I never tried it, but I heard it does work. Yeah, I, um, I, don't forget I covered the overweight candlestick. I used to go there all the time. Uh, with the Padres way back when. And I remember uh, Tim Flannery, who was a surfer, he would use the Vaseline, but he took it a step further. And the Abilene, I, I, I've tried, you know, that's that's that'll be better than Vaseline for sure. Um, but being a surfer, he would wear a wetsuit underneath his uh, uni sometimes up in uh, Candlestick. And um, uh, if you think about it, it was uh, great for his game because he used to get hit by pitches here and there and get yeah. rough. A little bit, so so that's how he dealt with the cold. And uh, now nowadays they have you know they have new shirts and things like that. So uh, it'll be interesting to see. And um, it's, it's it's these are always those quirky little stories that are kind of fun to see. Never heard the wetsuit before. That's pretty good. Yeah, I I, I was going to ask Kevin. I you know I remember Candlestick being at a game on a Friday night and freezing my behind off scouting and the next day being 99 degrees. Well, well that's what Flannery and the guys used to say. They used it was, to say. Uh, it was unbelievable. And I don't know if the new stadium plays the same. I'm sure it does, though. Well, it's not the same because it's in a different part of the war. Yeah. It's basically, you know, out on this little 
It was out on that point there. Yeah, a little point of land. So you got where, but they used to joke was that um, uh, at twelve o'clock in the afternoon, they you know sometimes it would be okay because twelve o'clock afternoon. So the joke was that this they 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 only came to see the stadium like when they put the team together and uh, all all the big wigs, Harstone and all. They only came out to Candlestick at twelve o'clock in the afternoon one day and never realized. And it might be true they never realized. The wind factors, what it would do. Of course, it blew off hats. It did this. It did that. It was by far the worst, the worst stadium. And the other thing I loved about it was, um, uh, you got me going here now. Was that it was, uh, it was the greatest place when a manager used to get thrown out because there was only one way out, all the way down the right field line. Right field line. So you had to make that perp walk all the way down the right field line. And and the the final point is, and we can talk about this at another time. But I just want to mention that uh, I was there for the earthquake in in, uh, 89. And uh, that's a story in itself. And if if I look to my right here in my office, I see a little piece of candlestick that I brought back with me. Wow. Oh, nice. uh, We're getting close to our end time. Kevin, you usually have a question of the day for Sal. You want to pose one to him in terms of mental or physical development for kids? Yeah, I is there anything, Sal, and this is a tough question, but um, I know it's up to the kids to make themselves better and to get out there and work, but is there a, is there a igniter that gets them going to, to do, do that kind of work? Or, or what would you suggest to kind of get these kids off the uh, couch and off the uh, MLB, the show, not 21, because Tatis was on that show, so he's not there anymore when he said they were changing the game, but... What, what can you do as a igniter to get some of these players uh, that don't have the, um, you know, the, the uh, wherewithal to go out there and do it on their own? Is there any way to ignite some of that uh, passion? Well, I think some of the stuff that's happening with these younger guys is their, their enthusiasm is dampened because from an early age, everything is organized. So there's no reason for them to know that they should be getting up and going out and playing. I think, I made the point last week, I believe, about we created, we've created, the industry has created this generation or two of, or generation of uncoachable kids. I think we've retarded their motivation because there's no motivation for them to go do it. We've done it for them. We've got the clubs. We send the emails out. We tell them the practices here and there. And the kids never have to go out on their bike and pedal over to the field and meet their buddies because they know they have three nights a week that's already been organized. So I, I think that's a cultural issue that we're dealing with that is going to be harder to change. I uh, per- uh, When I moved from San Diego back to New Jersey, I purposefully moved to a town that was kind of like in a little bit of a valley and where kids would ride their bikes and go to the fields. I knew yeah. that ahead of time. And, and, and the three schools were located in that town. So I think... I think that's up to parents too sometimes to, uh, you know, that maybe point them in the right direction. But you make a great point because I also knew a writer, um, and he was uh, he was really into his uh, his kids' basketball career, and he moved his house. He he bought the house right next to the gym, so he could the kid could go in there and practice whenever he needed need to have the practice. So uh, it's 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 interesting. It's interesting. That's all I got to say. Yeah, I, I think that's a big part of it. We we've, we've given him no reason to do it on their own because we've done it all for them. It's the, it's the helicopter snowplow approach, parent approach to sports. Yeah. Well, go ahead. 
No, I had a quick question, Sal. I always talk about flexible strength for kids. Yeah. Um, any Anything you could just give a quick pointer uh, for kids? You yeah. Know, well, so, and, and I'm sure it's a deep subject, but just. It is, but here's the two things. You have two types of flexibility. Uh, you could do static, which is the old school, bend, touch your toes, count to 10. You got you to get that out of all these pre-game, pre-activity warm-ups. You need to have dynamic flexibility and dynamic movement. Uh, the, the, the example is between you doing that static stretch where you're bending and touching your toes to having a movement based where you're doing that, but in a consistent pattern that's closer to what you're going to get in a ball game. And especially, Will, rotationally for baseball, for lacrosse, for golf, for most sports where there's rotation throwing involved swinging involved you need to have a dynamic series of movements which incorporates all body parts all muscle groups to prepare and to help you groove your technique right if you're if you're just doing a slow motion oblique move quote oblique move not real oblique but like what they say is to strengthen your obliques but it's at half the speed your swing with twice the weight your swing is, then what good is it? So that that is a big part of it. You can have people, I have athletes who are, quote, traditionally tight, but when they functionally, purposefully, they move very well. So what is, what, is, what would be awesome, that? So. Yeah, what would that, because I- Well, like even so, I, there's, so this, this, the old school static hamstring stretch versus what I call straight leg kick, so your static stretch, you're bending over, and first of all, you're you're never going to be in a position athletically where both hamstrings are being stretched. Versus the uh, single leg kick, imagine yourself an, in an upright position with both arms extended. If you were in a mirror, pointed at your face, and you take the leg you're going to kick and start it slightly behind your other foot, like you're going to kick a ball or kick a person or kick something that you want to move, and you kick that leg straight and up to try to touch your hand or, or forearm, and, and you do that alternating, that is a, a hamstring mobility movement that's going to have a purpose to it rather than just a static stretch where you're bending. I think, I, I, think I see a lot of soccer players do that here and yeah, there. Yeah, they do that. And again, there's some importance needs to be spent to uh, paid to how they do it. But in general, take out all the static stretch before your activity and you'll be well, better lastly, off. Lastly, because I saw Castellanos is the latest with an oblique. I was on a Philadelphia radio station last night talking about it, WIP with Ricky Ricardo. And um, will they ever learn about the, the, the oblique, Sal? No, they will not. Not until they completely change. And instead of just adding things, Kevin, uh, we, I didn't wanna, we didn't get to talk about the, the bands today, but instead of adding something positive and taking out something negative they just keep adding so if you add something good that's into something bad the benefit gets mitigated and that's what we're seeing so i, wish I had a job where you know a guy you know where basically i was in charge of these guys health and they all get hurt and yet i would still get a job and still, yeah, get, a you still get you're still an expert yeah yeah amazing now, what about spine mobility? I've been seeing a lot on a lot on on social media, Twitter, and whatnot in terms of exercises to to uh, make the spine more mobile. I guess does that have anything to do with oblique injuries? What sure, are your- because you know, with with there's something called lateral flexion. So that would be 
imagine you standing on your two feet and you're between two panes of glass and you're you're forced to move from side, bend from side to side, almost as if you're trying to touch my coaching cue is you're trying to touch your shoulder to the ground or your shoulder to the hip on that same side. That's lateral flexion. And you have rotation, which would be you're standing in that same position and you're turning to the right and you're trying to keep your feet flat and your legs straight and then midpoint and turn to your left. So you have both flexion and rotation. Uh, those are two things people lose during when you sit down a lot. I uh, During the shutdown, I had people coming back to me that weren't going into work, that were sitting more. From kids to adults, everybody lost that lateral flexion and that rotational uh, uh, ability in their spine, which is, is problematic. Uh, it affects everything you do from breathing to moving. I have a series of drills that I uh, – warm-ups that I have put out. I think, Dave, I sent you one of them that – we could, if we could get up on the Twitter page, would be a great um, starting point. Yeah, I'll re- I'll pull it out. Send it to me again if you got it. I'll have it up with this podcast because I great closing. I mean, Sal, Sal, so why did they shut down the gyms during the the, the shutdowns? Because <laughs> uh, I think mostly it was small businessmen who owned them. So yeah, uh, luckily I'm in Florida where uh, we were pretty much were open. So yeah, that yeah. Thank goodness for that. Same here, same here. God bless the South, right? The, uh, well, guys, great show again. I, we covered a number of different topics here. Uh, please follow. Make sure we're following Kevin on Ball 9. Two great articles. Again, as I told you, Kevin, the, the Roger Maris, I love all your articles, but the Maris one was the one I was waiting on, and that was my favorite one you've written so far. And I, I loved it to pieces. And I think Roger Maris, I'm, I'm so happy he has a home run record. But um, I think sometimes he's undervalued because of it. He had other parts of the game he was very good at. Um, great points today, guys. Again, this is uh, Coach and Kernan Podcast Network, Episode 33, uh, Panel of Resident Experts. Stay tuned later this week. We have three more shows coming up this week. She Gone Podcast. We have a day at the yard, Common Sense Pitching, with our very own Will George and Mark Wiley will be doing it. And then we have our Man on Second Podcast, which is our newest edition, Joe Passero. And uh, they, they, he brings it. He was great uh, with, the, with the recording today. So, again, great show today. We look forward to catching you guys tomorrow. Thanks, guys. Take care, guys.